Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of this evening. What a great, wonderful, and kind, and loving God you are. We recognize your presence here. We recognize your desire to minister, to bless, to encourage. We recognize tonight your desire to interface with each one of us individually, to personally reach into us and transform us. Lord, there are areas, if we're honest with ourselves and with you, that we would really like you to touch and to change, probably more than other areas, but we trust that you know best. So, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't kill each other tonight. Well, I won't kill you, but I mean, as far as we as a fellowship with the information. But rather that we could be so encouraged, so blessed, so well fed, so well invested in, so well equipped. And God, I love you. I thank you for the privilege of being able to praise you among my brothers and sisters. I thank you for the countless hours I feel like I spend bragging on our fellowship about how much of a gift and a delight they are. Thank you for what you're doing and the clarity of your handiwork upon them. So Lord, I pray for that fresh anointing. Immerse me that I would disappear and you would appear. Come upon me by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would do through me what only you can do. And speak to each one of us, every one of us here, individually tonight, right where we're at. Speak fluent us. So that, Lord, tonight, you would breach every language barrier, culture barrier to truly minister tonight, right where we're at that we could say, I met Jesus tonight. And for that, my life will never be the same. So Lord, not because we deserve it, but we boldly go to your throne of grace. Because you, Jesus, are our high priest, tempted in every way, yet without sin. And Father, because you are our Father. So we come to you and we say thank you. Have fun with us tonight and may we have fun with you and your word. Show us the great fun of it, of being a Christian and the joy now of walking in you. You've told us in Psalm 16 that in your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May we tonight recognize the abundance of joy in you and nowhere else. We commit this in ourselves and our attention and our minds and hearts and spirits, our beings to you. Have your way now, we pray in Jesus' name. Make your scripture come alive and make us come alive in it. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I would say tonight as it would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say.
Paul clearly has written, and when most of us have gone through now, imagine that, saints, we've gone through the entire book of Acts together. That's a stripe on your badge. As we've walked through God moving from Jerusalem to Antioch, from the apostles of Jesus through the Gospels to a man named Paul, from a stationary camera near the temple to the constant roving camera of the mission field with Paul. Once we leave the book of Acts, and again, praxis apostolos, the practices or actions of the apostles after the Gospels. We are now approaching a new season in our walks with Christ here as a church because we now dive into these beautiful books that we call the epistles. Epistle, epi means upon, stelas means sent. So an epistle in its simplest sense is male. So whether you know it or not, what we are about to do for quite a bit of time, unless the Lord comes back before him, is we're going to be reading other people's mail. Of the mail that we see, we will see 13 letters that are clearly written by this man, Paul. Four of which were clearly written when Paul was in prison in those last couple chapters that we read, or the last chapter we read in Acts. Of the 13 letters that we read, two of them were to churches that Paul has never met. Or I should say this way, that Paul hadn't planted, though he certainly knew people in each of those places, both of those places. The other 11 seem to be directly related to either churches that Paul planted, or in one case, a slave master who seemed to have come to know Christ through Paul's ministry. Now, in those 11 letters, where Paul does know the church personally, or where Paul does know the individual personally, who's responsible in one way or another for planting the church, the letters tend to be a bit more corrective. Paul is aware of something that's gone funky in the church, and he's trying to clean it out. For the Corinthians, an area, by the way, steeped in the supernatural, steeped in the area of sort of constant liberalism where tolerance was sort of the theme of the culture outside, and thus the church, instead of affecting the world around it, seems to have drawn its cues from it instead. So when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Paul's assessment as a pastor, a friend, and if you will, almost as a doctor to the church, says, y'all, carnal, that's what you are, you're carnal. And I can see it in the fact that you guys are sexually tolerant. I can see it in the way that you are all about suing each other. In other words, you're demanding your rights instead of serving one another. And I can see it in the way that you compete against each other. Not like a basketball day kind of thing, but in regards to your spiritual gifts. Who can bark in tongues the loudest? Who can levitate, wave their hands and fall over and shake and yell and barf and scream and laugh and whatever it is? Paul says, you guys are a carnal church. He never doubts that they're saved. And he starts to speak about how they need to return back to the Lord 
and humbled themselves. To the Galatian church, his concern is that they'd actually left the gospel. Someone had gone in there and gone and tried to get them back into the Jewish way of life to the point where their reliance for their own rightness with God was on their own works instead of on their, on their trust in Jesus Christ, on their faith in what Christ has done at the cross. The only church and letter that Paul writes where he doesn't say, I'm so thankful when I think of you. It's the only church where he wonders whether they're actually saved or not. To the Ephesian church, it was a church that had been steeped, by the way, in sort of the voodoo feel. And the church was no different. There was this whole idea of this sort of mystery religion where there was some form of mist out there and you kind of reached through the mist to find it. And they had, and we've been to Ephesus. There's some real funky things. People would go there to get healed and they'd sit in this, and it was such, it, it was such a con job. They'd sit in this sort of circular area. Did, did you go with us on that? Remember that? And, and, and as you sat in this area, kind of like these benches, but they were circular, there was this hallway they didn't know about on the outside of it and under Underneath, right here were these little vents. So if the person was running underneath, and they literally would run around and go, you're, you're feeling better, you're feeling better. And these people, not knowing that these priests were conning them, were sitting there going, I think the gods are telling me I'm feeling better. And they would shell out money after money after money in this spiritual battle. And the church started to get suckered into it too. And you know what they did? Is they started to turn into spiritual wimps. That's what Ephesus was about. No wonder why he says, you were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's where the battles fought. He tells us that you lack no spiritual gift. And then, though you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Christ raised you up, or God the Father raised you up with Christ to make you sit in Christ above all principality, power, might, dominion, and anything that is named. You're large and in charge because you're in Christ. By the time you get to the end of it all, you've already seen you lack no spiritual, bless, no spiritual blessing, no spiritual gifting, you lack none of them. You see that you have nothing that sits on top of you on this spiritual world that other people are like, here a demon, there a demon, everywhere a demon, demon. And by the end of it, he says, therefore, with all of that, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand. Because you guys have been retreating for a long time. That's the Ephesian church. The Philippian church, a church, by the way, that seems to be very female, is a very emotional church, and I'm not trying to pick on that. But with that, they're freaking out because Paul's in prison. And the whole letter basically is like, ladies, stop it. Well, and he might even say that to the guys as well. Ladies, stop it. But in the idea of it, stop freaking out. Being in prison actually isn't so bad. Oh, yeah, I'm not treated well, but great things are happening because of it. So I'll say rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now why does somebody have to repeat themselves? Why does someone have to repeat themselves? Maybe we're not listening. That's the Philippian church. The Thessalonian church, by the way, someone has come in and totally messed with their view of the end times. They actually said, I think the Lord's come back. And you missed it. Which really would be a scary thing. So with that, he goes and corrects that crazy doctrine. With all of those churches, can you see how he's correcting what's going on in the church? But the two churches, interestingly enough, that he hasn't planted, the church in Colossae and the church in Rome, Paul does not spend correcting the church. That's not his primary focus. 
Because he doesn't seem to have the kind of relationship where he even knows what's going on. Instead, he just really wants to make sure you've got the right God. And, you, and you've got him right. The right God, the right faith. And the whole book of Colossians, by the way, is really on, primarily, it's like the cliff notes of Galatians through Philippians. He like draws from those three, and in the end of it all, you're convinced of what God is by the time you're done. The firstborn over all creation, the image of the invisible God, everything that you'd want, the fullness of Godhead, that's Jesus. And I love reading Colossians for that. And that leaves us with this one letter, other than the one that he writes to a slave owner who basically, who had gotten saved through Paul's ministry, and one of his slaves, that guy, slaves, ran away, met Paul, got saved, and Paul said, hey, this guy followed me home, can I keep him? It's basically the letter. That's why it's a short one. And then Paul actually pulls a little rank and he says, let me remind you, you were going to hell before you met me. This is Paul speaking to Father And he goes, so this guy that's come and he's gotten saved, can I keep him? You know, you can see that's kind of shouldering a little bit, but get that. But Rome now, that's the only letter we have left of all the ones that Paul clearly wrote. And the letter to Rome is the most organized, it's the most succinct, and it's the most clear, in that sense, of an agenda, without it being corrective. Now, let me, let me just kind of lay it out. Rome is the, uh, is the lawmaker. Rome is the governor of the known world of our day. And this is, in essence, a very mu- written very much like a legal document. If you're the kind that's really orderly, your sock drawer is organized by color or shape or length or whatever, you must love the Book of Romans because it's extremely organized. With that, I can see why God put it in here first because it is the one book that if you actually get through it simply as you walk through it, you should be really solid on every simple doctrine of your salvation. And that's the point of it. Now, the question is, well, if Paul didn't plant the church, and clearly not every church was planted by Paul, who did? That's a logical question, don't you think? You're in Acts chapter 2, right? In Acts chapter 2, remember how the Holy Spirit fell upon 120 people while they were praying in a room, and they all came out speaking different languages? Understand, when people spoke in tongues in the beginning, what was very evident is the tongues that they spoke in were recognizable languages by the people who were around them. And with that, that drew attention. It was sort of a United Nations meeting. It's one of those three required feasts. And people from all over the place were there. It was the feast of the first great harvest. And with that... People start to stand up and say, how is it that we hear them speak in our own native tongues? And this guy over here who doesn't even remotely look French is speaking perfect French. And Hugo just gets it. Here's another guy over here who doesn't remotely look Mediterranean, but listen to his Italian. Listen to this sort of, you know, this person over here is black as night, but listen to the Portuguese that he speaks. Here's a little guy that's with red hair, is with Heather, the last thing you'd expect, and listen to him speak tree. And as they all do that, you kind of look and you just go, this is just the weirdest day I've ever been to. In that, in chapter 2, verse 10, as they start to speak about the languages that were spoken, it says Phrygia and Pamphylia, those are areas, by the way, in Turkey, 
Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, that's North Africa, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. There was someone within that 120 people, roughly, that was speaking perfect Latin. Oh, you may think it's a dead language. It wasn't on that day. And as they did, those that were from Rome understood them perfectly. A pretty radical thought. What's interesting is if you read the list, one of them, by the way, are those dwelling in Judea. That's where they're at. Now, I don't know if you got that. Don't miss that. Because that was the language they already spoke. Would you be bummed if you were the one person that spoke the language you understood? All of a sudden, I mean, the thing about our fellowship is it's so cool and funky, because let's be honest, if you guys all spoke, you could just speak in your native tongues and it would be like a tongue fest in here. So just for fun, for just a second, and this is a side note, but it's just kind of fun for it. Let's just see how many languages could be spoken if you guys just wanted to praise the Lord in a language other than English. We have French, that's clear. We have Italian, that's clear. We have Portuguese, that's clear. What's that? Yeah, and German. Yes, I know. And then we have three. Spanish. What's that? Afrikaans. What's that? Ah, Nepalese. Swahili. American. That's its own language. Kiwi. Eh? Greek. Greek. All words come from Greek words. Yes. Any others? Maltese. Like the falcon. Patois? Because I'm told the Janae is like a... She's good at patois, yeah? Native patois. Now listen to that. I mean, think about that. You know, there's a few more people that will probably show up before we're done. They'll speak. They'll be Turkish spoken here. You know, Cypriot Turkish and then regular Turkish. Cypriot Greek, regular Greek. Well, these people, imagine, they're all speaking, but it says that every one of them is not speaking in a tongue they don't understand. Someone's speaking in the tongue they do, but they all are speaking the same thing. When it says, we hear them declare the wonderful works of God. Man, they got so lit up, and all they wanted to do was talk about how awesome God is and what he did. But among them were a group of people from Rome. Not just Jews, but proselytes. And a proselyte was somebody that wasn't born Jewish, but had gone through all of the necessary requirements, in essence, to basically commit themselves to a Jewish lifestyle. And they tend to be people who, by the way, are really, really, really proud of their Jewishness because they actually earned it. Now, with that in mind, what happens when all of these people go back after, the, uh, after this whole thing's over? The feast is done. As the feast is done, now you just got saved. You're going to go back to Rome how exactly are you going to start a church? Everybody in the church is as new a Christian as you are. But maybe by the second. I think I got saved at 904. You got saved at 905. I'm the older. I mean, think about it. That's what you have there. Could you imagine? Think about how you could compete to try to figure out who bellies up to be the leader. I mean, think about what could happen there. But we don't have any of that. All we kind of know is that's kind of where it started. And then something happens by about somewhere in the 40s A.D. Now that's about 10 years later. 
where in Acts 18 we read about this guy Claudius, who was the Caesar of the day, who booted all the Jews out of Rome because he thought they were troublemakers. Interesting, because the particular Suetonius, who, by the way, is one of the historians of the day, made this statement, since the Jews constantly make disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. And many believe that that Crestus is speaking of Christ. The idea that there are Jews that are constantly getting upset about this whole Jesus thing, so we booted out all the Jewish people. Do you know what that means? That means that the only people left in Rome that would be Christian weren't Jewish at that point. Now, we know that they made it back there, one of the reasons we know that is when Paul writes to the, to the book here to the Romans, when he does, he says, say hi to Priscilla and Aquila. And they were part of the people who got kicked out back at this point. So they did make it back. But somewhere here now, you've got a Gentile church. Now, somewhere down the line in all of this, Paul wants to visit them. We know that by chapter 19, Paul says in verse 21, and you can flip there so you can check and make sure I'm not making this up. By Acts 19... Verse 21, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, and Achaia, by the way, is Greece, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, this isn't one of those, I just must see Rome, I really want to check out the Colosseum and get one of those cool shirts. No, the the idea here is, is that he knows that there's some appointment that he has with Rome. Flip to chapter 23. Paul is now on a boat that everybody thinks they're going to die. By the way, en route to Rome, by verse 11, chapter 23, verse 11, it says, But the following night the Lord stood by him. And actually, by this point, he's just in Caesarea before he leaves. And he says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness in Rome. From there, he leaves, heads to Rome on a very rough trip that takes us to the end of the book. Paul now, by this point, at the end of the book of Romans, has made it. I'm sorry, at the end of the book of of Acts, has made it. The book we're about to read puts Paul back now three years from the time that he was about to leave there for, for Rome. Now, if that confused you, forgive me. Here's the simplest of it. We're going back now to the time where Paul was heading to Jerusalem so he could get beat up and shipped off to Rome. So this precedes his visit. Many would call this book the Constitution of Christianity because it is so organized. So let me put it into simple categories, and we're going to dive into the first handful of verses. For those of you who have been around, you kind of know a bit of this. If you haven't, I suggest you take this down as a note. It's a simple thing, and it's five S's. The book of Romans, and none of them are exclusive to their sections, but might I just suggest this. And it works in perfect order. The first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, focus on sin. That's that simple. And God tells you what the simplest sin is, which, by the way, is just saying no to him. From there, God takes us to chapters 3 through 5, and in chapters 3 through 5, the section is on salvation. Because now that you recognize you're a sinner, you know you need to be saved. So, three to five, salvation. Now that you've been saved, if we lived our lives much like the book would be written, it would be very different. If the book was written like we live our lives, maybe that'd be the end of the book. Now I'm saved. What's, there, what's left? 
But chapter 6 through 8 now take us to what we would call sanctification. In other words, God starts to set us apart. Now listen, listen to that for a minute. The moment you gave your life to Jesus, God started making you different. And he started making you different from every person that doesn't know Jesus in the world. Every person, because they are spiritually dead. Which means you are the only living thing in the morgue. Now, if that is the case, the strangest thing happens when you start surrounding yourself with a group of people who really don't like to not fit in. Because they'll say, come on, we need to be able to connect with the world. We need to build bridges with the world. And it's interesting how quickly we could cross over but not bring the cross over when we cross over. And the crazy thing is, is we're so busy trying to look like something. And here's the funny thing. You are fighting God. Because God is making you different while you're trying to make yourself the same. How fun of a job is that? And that's exactly chapter 6 to 8. You died to sin. Why do you want to live any longer in it? It used to be your master. Why would you want to submit to it again? That's not who you are. You used to walk in the flesh. Now you could walk in the Spirit. That's your choice. But the promises are for those who walk in the Spirit. There's no promise of blessing for those who want to walk in the flesh. So you want to act dead. The only thing that will separate is you. You just might not rot as quickly. But the Lord is going to make you different. And, people, and that's going to bother people. And you know what I've learned? Who it bothers the most often are those that call themselves Christians. And I'm not telling you they are or they aren't, but have no interest in really doing anything with their life. Because you are reminding them that there's more to life than just breathing. Well, I'm spiritually alive. I'm going to heaven. Well, I'm going to heaven too. Well, I want to... And God just sort of assumes you really want to charge for Him. That there must be something awesome ahead of that. That you're charging for the prize. And someone's like, no, I just want to get in and sit on the grass. And the moment you start getting up and running, all those spiritually flabby people go, whoa, 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 what are you doing? You're making me look bad. God's like, no, no, no. It's time to start setting you apart. Six through eight. So now you've recognized you're a sinner. You recognize that taking the faith you once put in yourself and putting instead upon Jesus, three through five, salvation. God now, because of that, now starts to set you apart, six through eight. Now you actually want God's will. But here's the problem. You can't do it. You're actually not spirit, I'm sorry, physically able to do God's will. But God is able to do God's will through you. And thus we get 9 through 11, which is God's sovereignty. Now in it, the simplest point is God plays for keeps. That's the whole point of 9 through 11. What is God doing with Israel? He's actually maneuvering it in a way so that he can completely reconcile Israel again. And to do that, it's going to look really rough for a while. And we go, God, what are you doing? He's like, I'm in control. Trust me. I know what I'm doing because I play for keeps. So a guy comes. He gets saved. He's all into it for a while. And then he kind of goes back to his crack. But he's trying to let people believe that he's still serving the Lord like he did before. But nobody's fooled except maybe him. 
And he's trying to act normal. And he's trying to act like that. And he's like, you know, a sip of this here, though he knows he shouldn't do that at all. And there's a little this and a little that. And somewhere down the line, and all of a sudden, boom, he goes into this full-blown tirade and things go really ballistic. And you kind of look and go, whoa, what did I do? How did I fail? What could I have done to keep him from And God's like, settle down. I'm in control. And this guy isn't going to come without scars. And that, by the way, is what we might call the road to brokenness, which none of you have to be on, but some of you will choose to be on. The road that says, are you broken enough to let go? Or are you still going to fight me on this? 9 through 11. And then the last section, 12 through 16, service. You know, the most interesting thing is that we could actually, if we're hungry just to try to find people to serve to make our life easier, we could skip two through four. And what happens then? Well, you got, you know, it's like you're a sinner. Oh, we're all sinners. Why don't you serve at the church? No, see, God actually says, let's work some things out first. Let's get, let's see you, this person gets saved. And that's not enough yet. Then let's watch, let's let God set them apart and them to trust that God still is going to handle it. And as they start to learn how to walk in the Spirit, they find themselves serving instead of you ordaining them to have a specific tag or a badge so they can start doing something. The best thing is to serve out of the overflow. Does that make sense? You know what's interesting? Five sections. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and then service. Did you get that? Try to say it with me if you can. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, service. One more time. Now you try it. Sin, Yes, sovereignty and service. Now, what's interesting is there are other fives in the, uh, in the Bible, too. For instance, the first five books of the Bible we would call the Torah. Interesting, what do we focus on in Genesis? Sin. What do we look at in Exodus? Salvation, getting them out of Egypt. What do we see in Leviticus? God setting them apart by the bloody sacrifice, by the blood. What do we see in Numbers? God's sovereignty as we see a 40-year death march. What do we see in Deuteronomy? service as God prepares them for the new land. Interesting, you'll see the word love in Deuteronomy more times than you will in the first four books combined. Fascinating how that works, huh? He's been setting us up for this for quite a while. For what it's worth, there are five books of Psalms, too. You're welcome to go through that as well. Now, I know all I've done at this point is kind of give us sort of an overview, but now we're going to start digging in. And I am so excited to get in this book, but we are not going to mow through this thing like it's... What we would be doing is like grabbing a lawnmower and running through a garden. What I'd rather do is just take time and sniff the flowers. Because there are gems throughout this entire thing, but I never want to lose the forest for the trees. Are you with me so far? Ready to dig in? All right, look at the beginning of it. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called, notice to be is in italics, that means it's added, called an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead 
through whom that we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. Beginning. I don't know if you noticed this, but I'd like to show you something. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. First part, Paul shows that he has chosen now to become someone else's servant. Interesting, which means Paul was a slave before this. Can I just say, perhaps that hints to me of sin. Called apostle. Separated to the gospel of God. God saved him. God separated him. And he promised it beforehand because he's sovereign. And then in verse 5, he has then received grace and apostleship. In the first five verses, we see all five of those things borne out. Sin, salvation, then we see sanctification, which means to be separate or set apart. Serenity and service. Now, in the beginning of this, I just thought I'd throw that out at you. We remember, those of you who have been going through Exodus with us, what it means to be a bondservant. A person who has sold themselves into service because they are in debt. They can't pay their bills. They owe a debt they cannot pay. And thus, once the debt is paid, out of love for their master, they would rather serve their master for the rest of their existence than ever go with what they think could be go-free otherwise. And with that then, that owner goes and takes him to the doorpost, pierces his ear with an awl, puts a ring in it, and he is called a bondservant. Exodus 21.6. That's why my ear is pierced, sincerely. And he's called an apostle. Now that could be a dangerous term for you. And again, we're sniffing flowers here. We're not running through this thing. I remember going to Versailles in France. It was freezing. It was a typical London day in France. It was not warm. It was cold. It was rainy. It was windy. But I have the most amazing eldest daughter. She has never been about getting anywhere. She will stop and pet the dog, sniff the flower, meet a person, whatever it is, she wants to look at it. And if you're the task-oriented individual, she will drive you mental. I've grown to appreciate it more and more as I get older. Because I realize every flower we sniff, every dog that's pet, is another woman I get to watch my daughter be herself. The reason I say that is, as we stop for a moment and pet this dog, enjoy what it says. Paul is called an apostle. Well, aren't there just 12 apostles? No, not in Scripture. The term apo means out of, stelas means sent, like epistle. Now, an epistle and an apostle are not the wives. The epistles are not the wives of the apostles. Remember, epistle is a letter. Apostelos means sent out from. What an apostle is is someone that is sent out for a mission. According to this, Paul was sent out for a mission. Interesting, not only Paul, but Barnabas was also called an apostle in Acts 14.14. But just so you know... How serious God takes this? By Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Consider the high priest an apostle of your faith, Christ Jesus. Jesus was called an apostle. Sent out for a mission. That's the idea. 
Now, interesting, today, if a guy kind of shows up and says he's an apostle, chances are he kind of comes out in a robe and he wants to kind of seize your fellowship. Probably happens a lot in Africa, doesn't it? Hi, I'm Apostle Sinawabe Kamayuba. And I've just come to seize your fellowship. Because I'm an apostle, I have a right. But I know Matt well enough. He's like, but I'm a shepherd and I have a staff. For a reason. See, shepherds are there to protect the sheep. So we say, okay, Mr. Apostle, what are you, who are you sent out from? And what are you sent out to do? I'm sent out to collect money from your fellowship. By who? For who? The Lord. Good news is the Lord has my number too. And He can call me and tell me. Until then, hit the road, Apostle. Now, I really do want the Lord to minister to us. And that doesn't have to happen through me. We've seen that tonight even in praise. Wasn't it wonderful to praise the Lord with Landon and Matt? But what if you're an apostle and you don't know it? Sent out on a mission. By the time I look at Paul and Barnabas, it seems like these guys go bravely where no other Christian has ever gone. Preach the gospel and see a church planted. That's the work of an apostle, at least as we see it practically in the book of Acts. Matt's doing the work of an apostle. God never gives authority without responsibility. If you think you have authority and no responsibility, that's a tyrant. By the way, he also never gives responsibility without authority. And we know how bad that is. Because that is a surefire way to exhaust you and kill you. But God gives you the authority that is necessary to get the responsibility done. Now, for a person sent out, think about the authority Paul had. Did he ever flex it upon the people? We don't even read that he ever took a collection for himself. He took a collection for a church in Judea. People did send him, send him funds, but he never asked for them, it looks like. He just said, thank you for it. And he never went out and actually demanded anything other than this. He even worked when he showed up in places when he could. But he ministered every chance he could because he was sent out to see churches planted. And Paul says, I'm an apostle. And he'll, by the way, say that several times throughout several of the books that he writes, several of the letters. So I'm Paul. Barn, it says, bondservant of Jesus Christ. And notice the first thing he doesn't start with apostle, like I'm the big guy in charge. He starts by saying, I'm just a slave, just like you, that has surrendered to the perfect master. That's the first place we start. Isn't that great? So Paul starts by connecting with us on the fact that all we are are sinners saved by grace, including him. And God gave me this responsibility of being an apostle. Separated to the gospel of God. Now let me tell you what makes me a little different. Is that God separated me for this specific call. Now, the Lord has called us all to be witnesses, to be evidence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some will be called evangelists. In other words, that will be their primary gifting. And for people like that, we love them. You know what's funny? How many of those evangelists get get insulted and and made fun of and persecuted by Christians who have never evangelized? And can I just say, if a guy's out there standing and shouting on a street corner and you've never shared the gospel, shut up and pray for him. (laughs) Because truth be told, there are people that are out there that are going to call. And you know what? If you're not called to scream on on a street corner and somebody else is, you should thank the Lord they're out there. Because obviously that means that spot's filled. But on the other side of it, there are others that Lord's called actually to go and preach the gospel on a bus one-on-one, preach the gospel in Acosta, one-on-one, 
I've seen guys that do it through music in pubs. Now listen, there are some who are separated to that. And by the way, it says those that, that preach the gospel should live by it. And in that, let us be involved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're the kind that God has actually sewed your lips shut, then you can still pray. And every person out there on the front line needs your prayers. But every one of you are going to be, listen, listen, every one of you are going to be evidence. Now, sometimes evidence speaks, but always evidence preaches. Now, it's interesting because it's something that revolutionized my walk with Christ because I remember thinking that my job is to go out because I'm a Westerner, like many of you, so it's a task-oriented thing. It's a box to tick. Did I go out and preach Jesus to anyone today? Now, there are certain days, and what happened is we started by saying, we're going to walk and we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Lord. And there are days where we'd walk and we'd pray, and we would bump into people, and we just knew we had to preach the gospel to them. That's just the way it is. But then we realized there were other nights where we'd walk and pray, and it was like the Lord, like we were like opposite poles on a magnet, you know? It's like every time we kind of got near, people were like, whoa, they'd flee. Then maybe they knew what we were going to do. I don't know. But the reason I say this, and then we go, oh, I feel like such a failure, and then I go to bed at night and the Lord would go, whoa, 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 we just spent the entire night together and you're a failure? And that's when the Lord had me take a second look at the book of Acts. And I realized the word materias, the word for witness, is the word for evidence. And all of a sudden it made sense to me. If I'm going to do everything, the Bible says I am to do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything. Because I'm going to be evidence one way or another. And if I realize what God's called me to be is evidence, then I'm always on call. But there are going to be times my joy is going to be the testimony. There's sometimes my peace is going to be the testimony. Because I'm still going to be bold about Jesus. When someone asks me, I'm not going to go, it's a nice day. Why are you so happy? Jesus. They don't, you don't have to say more than that. Get the word out. The name that's above all names. And then you've just become evidence. And there are times where the Lord's going to sit you down however he's called you. For some of you, it's like it's going to be a crowd gathers and you just jump into the front of it and you do your thing. Praise the Lord for that. There are others of you, you you'd, you'd throw up in front of a crowd. And that's not necessarily the testimony you think you want to give. But when you're there praying and someone, someone comes next to you and goes, do you really believe that guy? And you want to look like them, but he's setting you apart. Can you imagine what happens when you say, yes, I do believe that guy. And I go, like, ah, I can't go anywhere. People get saved from things like that and you were part of it. And all you did was not back down. Do you see what I'm saying? And the reason I say that is, is that everyone is called to be evidence. And there are times where the Lord's going to pull out of you because it's His Holy Spirit that gives you that boldness anyways. But He's going to make you evidence. And the cool thing is, you can say, well, I testified for these 25 minutes, but then you were horrible evidence for the rest of the day. That's like feeling like saying that all of it belongs to God because you tithed, but the other 90% went to gambling. We know better than that. He deserves it all. But what if we were evidence all the time? Well, I don't have to be evidence to Bruno, right? He's saved. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't we as believers need to see evidence too? Isn't it a wonderful thing when we get to watch how the Lord is transforming someone? Okay, Natasha, I see Jesus more in you today than I did yesterday. Jenny, I see how the Lord's carrying you through some pretty rough spots. You start to realize, man, 
man, we need that evidence just as much as everyone else is. Mary, what we get to watch with you and Penny and your, your husband is, is just extraordinary. And Paul says, though, that's all I've got. That's who I am. And apostles tend to be very gospel people. They should be because otherwise the church is planted with something else and that's stupid. Think about it. The church has to be planted with the foundation and no other foundation can be laid except Jesus Christ, right? So a guy that actually says he's an evangelist, an evangelizer, he's an evangelist but he isn't preaching Jesus, what are you evangelizing? What's your good message? That you can be successful? You can be healthy and wealthy? while you preach to poor people and take their money? Or the Jesus saves jerks like me and you? Because he does. Now here's the danger. Can I just say this? And whatever your calling is, however the evidence that he's going to put on the table, the danger is that though that ministry may be your ministry, it's not everyone. I call it the Keith Green complex. Some of you are familiar with Keith Green from back in the 70s. He was this sort of lounge singer that got saved. But he was one of those guys who was super hospitable. He, kind of, he was a hippie that got saved. And you know what he did? He was a saved hippie. And he invited all the hippies into his house. And they all lived there. And it was a commune. And it was like a goat walk through in the middle of the day. You know, I mean, that's kind of that kind of thing. But I remember on one of his particular albums, for those of you who don't know, that's like a CD, only bigger, um, he had actually said, and if you're not doing that, I don't even know if you're saved, was kind of the idea. And I'm like, whoa, 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 be careful, pal. For him, that was his ministry. And if he, would do, if he wasn't doing it, that was total disobedience. But there were other people that were practicing hospitality in a lot of other ways that he couldn't see because it wasn't his way. Does that make sense? So for the guy that does stand up and preach on the street corner, the danger might be that he might not see the guy on the bus doing it and think, well, you're obviously disobedient. You didn't jump up here. For the person that's actually on the bus, they might think that that guy's a lunatic because they do it differently. But do you see what I'm saying? There are some people, to be honest, that the only way they're going to actually listen to someone is going to be you and not me. And that's why it's not about experts. It's about experience. Have you met Jesus? If so, then you're evidence. And you're going to testify of that whether you like it or not. Okay, well, we better move forward. And we're not going to go, obviously, horribly far on this. I'm going to get past the pulpit, looks like. All right. Okay, look at Are you following me on this? Because, I look at I know that the way that the Lord's called Mario is different from the way that the Lord's called Smiley. I know that the way that the Lord's called Smiley is different than the way that the Lord's called Bruno. But you know what? The issue is about clinging to Jesus and being obedient. Because in the end, the only real success is going to be, were you obedient or not? Hey, Jeremiah was super successful in the eyes of God, but no one ever repented at his ministry. Jonah was horribly successful in the sight of the world. He could write the book on how to save a, an unsaved pagan community. But he didn't really appear to be very successful in the eyes of the Lord. You're left by the end of it going, I think I need to take a spiritual shower after reading this book. At the end of it, he's like a spoiled brat. Now look at you separated the gospel of God. We've gotten to verse 1. Which he promised before through his prophets, which by the way is very clear that Jesus had spent a great deal of time making clear that everything that he experienced was in fulfillment of Scripture. He was born a seed of David, which by the way was required. 
He had to come from the lineage of King David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 16 tells us that. It says in verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. By verse 14, he says, I will be his father, he will be my son. And verse 16, it says, Your throne, therefore, will be established forever. But this is where I want to at least get us. I have to get us at least to this so we can go right for the throat. Verse 4. We have to at least go that far. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We live in a culture here where it's really rough if you start isolating yourself, as a, which by means you really can't be a Christian and actually be acceptable here. Because to be a Christian means that you're actually telling other people that what they believe that isn't Christianity is a lie. Oddly enough, they have been saying that from the beginning with their groups, but that's just part of their doctrine. Somehow it's new for us. Hate speech for us. And one of the things that's very common here in London is, and you can go, by the way, to specific places in Israel or other places, Arabia, for instance, and you can go to places where you say that there's only one God and he has no son. It is actually one of the things you must declare. Interesting, because 500 years before the first guy that said that said that, to set up his religion, the Son of God proved He was the Son of God. Now, if you are God, you have to do something more than a guy can. Or a woman can. Now, healing someone, that's really cool. I'll grant you that. But doctors can do that. Even raise someone from the dead. That, you can actually say, we can have those things clear. Those defibrillators, check, sure. And then, we've watched people resuscitated. I remember giving mouth to mouth to someone when I was 15, 16. Blue so hard he threw up in my mouth. True story. Don't, yeah, see? Think about that for a moment. All right. You could go, okay, well, that's really cool. But when you're dead, you're not going to make yourself alive again. That's it. You're done. And if you are going to stay dead, then what you said was a lie. And that's what Jesus said. When they said, what sign will you give us? And he goes, I only have to give you one. It isn't going to be how many people I heal. It isn't going to be how many dead I raise. It isn't going to be about how I can stop the sun or how I can make it, you know, how I can make it dark or I can make it light or I can still a storm or I can walk on water. Those things are cool, but only one thing is going to separate me from the rest of the world. I'm going to the grave and I'm going to get myself back out again. And that's going to separate me from any lunatic that comes 500 years and says he's an improvement. How exactly is someone an improvement when, this, when my Savior died for me, rose from the dead, rose the, rose the dead, healed the sick, cleansed the leper, received the prostitute and saw her transformed, and some guy 500 plus years later is going to kill people and say he's an improvement? Listen. I don't want to pick on anyone. I want to exalt my Savior. And my Savior proved not just that He was good, not that He was just a good teacher, not just that He was nice, 
Not just that He was pure, not just that He was unique. He proved He was the Son of God. That's what He proved. And if He proved He was the Son of God, He proved it with this, the resurrection from the dead. That means there's a whole lot of dead, and He got up. Interesting, because that's what happened to you. Listen, what Jesus did was He proved He was the Son of God by, being, being, by, by coming alive and getting out up from the dead. Did you get that? And people go, we're all sons of God. No, actually, according to the Bible, we're all sons of wrath. It's not as nice of a term. It's pretty much the opposite. But, because we all start out spiritually dead, how do you show that you are now a son of God? You get up from the dead. Now, you just do it spiritually. Because you're an adopted son. Jesus is the only one. Monogenes is the word in the Greek. Mono means one. Genes is like the word gene. Can I just say, Jesus was the only one from the Father's gene pool. We were adopted. But we're still sons. And ladies, you might say, I want to be a daughter. No, you don't. Because a daughter is a temporary child in a family in the Middle East. Sooner or later, they're going to marry you off. You're going to be carrying someone else's name. A son is a permanent member of the family. That's not God being chauvinistic. That's God saying, you are a permanent member of the family with the rest of them. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, you're kind of a girl. So that's kind of, you're sort of kind of got in. He looks at you when you are just as much a member of the family as the boys are. No change. So please hear me out. You are going to be walking out this door soon. And there is a world out there that doesn't have a problem with you being a Christian until they discover you're a real one. And a real one is going to be offensive. But Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended by me. Now, I'm not telling you be a giant jerk for Jesus. I'm telling you grow a spine because you also don't need to be a jellyfish for Jesus. The world is sick of that. They, would rather, they will respect a cult leader because at least though he's telling lies, he has a spine. And we're busy sugar-footing. We're doing like this little thing while everyone else is like just going like this through things. And we're like, I don't want to offend anyone. Everyone else is. And all we're really doing is being wimps and going, go ahead and take over our church. Go ahead and take over our thing. And, you know, we really don't want to offend anyone. Look, let me just say this. I would rather offend you and watch you get saved than have you go, what a nice guy, until you walk into hell and then go, what a jerk. So listen, Paul says, you know what? I was, a, I was a slave to sin and now I'm a slave to Jesus. Glory to God, I'm a bondservant. But I'm not just a bondservant, I am sent out. I'm an apostle. That's what they call me. I am called an apostle. And if I'm called an apostle, I should do something about it. If I'm called out, I should go out and do something. Well, let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm separated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm separated to. And let me tell you about that gospel. That gospel is not about church. That gospel is not about money. That gospel is not about you being healthy. That gospel is not about you making money. That gospel is about Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that Jesus died on the cross and God had promised it beforehand. Jesus was no Johnny come lately. We've been waiting for Jesus for a long time. 
And when he showed up, just like God promised in Daniel 9, and we'll, we'll look at that on Sunday, he came to the very day we should have expected him. Everything about it was just as God promised. And with that, he died on the cross. And there, he proved that he meant what he said when he said, I'll die for you for your sins. He proved he was sincere. And he proved that he loved us because he said, greater love have no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. He proved that. He proved he was sincere and he proved he loved you when he died at the cross. But he proved when he resurrected that he was the Son of God. And he proved it and he was declared it. And even there they said, truly, that was the Son of God. Those guys that were chicken, that were freaking out, Peter who even denied him will stand and say, judge for yourself whether you're going to serve God or men. But I'm serving God now. Don't tell me to shut up. It ain't going to happen. That's the same guy who denied Jesus just a while before that. What happened? He encountered the Son of God with power because he was resurrected. Now look at my challenge to you as we go to prayer tonight. And boy, look at how far we've gotten. Four verses. Lots of flowers in this garden, isn't there? And we barely smell them. Look at it. If this offends you, ask yourself, is this true? Not just is this offensive. There are a lot of things in Scripture that my flesh doesn't agree with. And I have to ask, is it true? I mean, that day when I woke up and I realized someone had broken into my house and stole a young man's body and replaced it with an old fat guy's. I woke up, I went, whoa. And Ruthie went, whoa, you're fat. (laughs) And I went, thanks, sweetheart. You're always so good at being tactful. It's offensive, but I realized something is going to need to happen because when I started jumping up in basketball, part of my body was negotiating with gravity. All of it didn't jump at the same time now. That's really weird. And when I landed, the same thing. It's like, my daughter started calling me Jiggles. And I remember inside, because it's a statement I've made before, the Lord kind of sat me down and goes, hey, hey, hey. The question isn't, is it offensive? The question is, is it true? What are you going to do about it? Did anyone else die for you? Did anyone else say, you're guilty, I'll pay for your sins? No. No. They didn't even get that far. Did anyone else take your shame? Anyone else willingly take the spit, the beating, the mockery? That some of us are actually honest enough to say we deserve it. Only one step forward to do that. Wouldn't it have stunk if he died and stayed there after all that? thought, man, he sure was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He died, but he said he wouldn't stay dead. Praise God that Jesus not only was perfectly sincere, but absolutely strong. And with that, he's declared to be not a, but the Son of God with power. Because he is the redeeming Son, the firstborn. The one, by the way, our big brother, we look up to and say, that's the way I'm supposed to be. My challenge to you, first of all, is have you accepted the gift of the resurrected Son of God?
Are you still trying to play games and try to treat Jesus like he's part of a salad bar? You know what? People don't mind making up their own God because then they can do it the way they want to do it. But the moment they realize Jesus is a real person, it's rough. Because now you have to figure out how you're going to submit to him. And you're like, but I'd like to do this. And I'd really kind of, can I still rub that guy's belly and sit in this position and climb to this tower? And can I still, it's like, you know what? You're, you're going to broken cisterns when you've met the fountain. Is that really what you want to do? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? If you have accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, here's my challenge. Get up. Out of the dead. From the dead. Not don't have anything to do with them. You're called to preach the gospel to them. You are called to be evidence. Lay there like the rest of them and act dead. Get wasted all the time. Go around and have sex like everyone else and just try to tell everyone how empty you feel, but you told them Jesus will fulfill you. What kind of evidence is that? Get up from the dead and live. Rise and shine for God's light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Darkness covers the earth. Deep darkness covers the earth. But the Lord has caused His glory to shine upon you. His glory rises up upon you. And if that's the case, somewhere down the line, someone says, this is a dark place. And I say, not anymore. You're the light of the world. Get turned on. And get out of the bushel. So as we pray, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time praising, because we're kind of on it, I think. I just want to challenge you. You're still trying to act dead among the living? Because that's where you are now. Welcome to the land of the living, beloved. That's church. You pray with me? Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for the grace that you've given us in your word. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you were declared to be the Son of God. With power. According to the spirit of holiness. The spirit that sets people apart and you were set apart because you were resurrected from the dead I want to thank you for people like Paul that has been sent out but he wasn't an apostle first he was a bondservant first and that's the way he presents himself may we do that too Lord may we be people who aren't busy trying to show what kind of spiritual giant we are but first as believers as disciples as servants, glory in the fact that every one of us has been given great, immeasurable grace, delivered from hell, and allowed into the home of a loving master, the loving master, to whom we claim to serve for the rest of our lives. And then you send us out. And you separate us. And you separate us by your gospel. We are people of good news in a world that's full of bad news. The latest economic crash, the latest military threat, the latest rape and robbery. And we speak life from the dead. And you've called us to be evidence. You promised this gospel beforehand through your scriptures your prophets and as you have your gospel concerns you Jesus and you were declared the son of God 
with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Though a seed of David and the fulfillment of that lineage is more than being the son of David. And I know that even the Jewish people today are hungry for that son of David, that king. But I thank you that you revealed yourself first as the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. So Lord, as much as that may be offensive and challenging, my prayer first and foremost right now is that we would be asking ourselves, is it true? And right now in this room, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, His death for your guilt, His resurrection to be cut, the Son of God, His price paid so that you could be adopted, delivered from being a child of wrath to being a Son of God. I want to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree... I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let these words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. I confess to you I'm guilty. I confess to you I'm wrong. But I know you love me. And in loving me, you paid the price for all of my guilt by sending your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that my guilt could be paid for and that he rose again from the grave on the third day, just like your scripture promised. You've shown me the price is paid in full. So I say yes to the gift of Jesus. And I say yes right now to your offer to not just make me your son and make me innocent, but I also surrender my life to you to be the servant that you call me to be to you. Make my life with purpose. Call me out and use me, I pray. I'm yours. I belong to you in Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Lord, I pray right now for every believer in this room, every disciple, every follower, that you would call us out from the dead, that we'd stop trying to look like the rest of the world. But right now, we would turn our hearts you and say, Lord, call us out and make us the evidence you call us to be, because we belong to you now. Use us to transform this world. Jesus, in your name, amen. Oh, Lord, one more thing. I I just want to pray right now. My heart's just moved for this. As we've talked about the gospel, I pray for the salvation of our country. I pray for the salvation of our city that you would raise up gospel preachers for the masses and for the, for the multitudes and for the individuals. And then you make us such people. And I pray that you would make Camden, the place where the punk and the hippie and the goth movement started, every counterculture movement. What greater counterculture movement could there be than, than the Jesus movement? So I pray right now, Lord, that you start right here, birth a revolution in your name of evidence that's bold and unwavering with backbones, boldness, and clarity. God, save this country and use us to do so. Jesus, in your name.
Amen.